Getting started on your mission statement. Below, I've listed four easy methods to help you get started writing your own mission statement. You may want to try one of them or combine all four of them in any way you see fit. These are just suggestions, so feel free to find your own method. So method one, the quote collection. Collect one to five of your favorite quotes onto one sheet of paper. The sum of these quotes then becomes your mission statement. For some, great quotes are very inspiring, and this method works well for them. Method two, the brain dump. Speed write about your mission for 15 minutes. Don't worry about what's coming out. Don't edit what you're writing. Just keep writing and don't stop writing. Get all of your ideas down on paper. When your brain has been sufficiently purged, take another 15 minutes to edit, arrange, and make sense of your brain dump. The result is that in just 30 minutes, you'll have a rough draft of your mission statement. Then over the next several weeks, you can revise it, add to it, clarify it, or do whatever else you need to make it inspire you. Method three is the retreat. Plan a large chunk of time, like an entire afternoon, and go to a place you adore and where you can be alone. Think deeply about your life and what you want to make of it. Look to the mission statement examples that we covered earlier in the book. Take your time and construct your own mission statement using any method you see fit. Method four, the big lazy. If you're really lazy, use the U.S. Army slogan, be all that you can be, as your personal mission statement. A big mistake teens make when writing a mission statement is that they spend so much time thinking about making it perfect, they, they never get started. You are much better off writing an imperfect rough draft and then improving it later. Another big mistake is that teens try to make their mission statements look like everyone else's. That doesn't work. Mission statements come in many forms, a poem, a song, a quote, a picture, many words, a single word, a collage of magazine pictures. There's no single right way to do it. You're not writing it for anyone else but you. You're not writing it for your English teacher, and it's not going to be graded by anyone. It is your secret document, so make it sing. The most important question to ask yourself is, does it inspire me? If you can answer yes, you did it right. Once you have it written, put it in a place where you can easily access it, like inside your journal or on your mirror. Or you could reduce it, laminate it, and put it in your purse or wallet. Then refer to it often, or even better, memorize it. Here are two more examples of teen mission statements, each very different in style and length. Whitney Noziska's mission statement. Care about the world, care about life, care about people, care about myself. Love myself, love my family, love my world, love knowledge, love, love learning, love life. Fight for my beliefs, fight for my passions, fight to accomplish, fight to do good, fight to be true to myself. Fight against apathy. Rock the boat. Don't let the boat rock me. And be a rock. Be remembered. 
This one was written by Katie Hall. It is short, but to her, it means everything. My mission statement, nothing less, period. Three watchouts. As you strive to begin with the end in mind and develop a personal mission statement, watch out for dangerous roadblocks. So watch out number one, negative labels. Have you ever felt labeled by others in a negative way, by your family, teachers, or friends? You guys from the east side are all the same, always getting into trouble. You're the laziest kid I know. Why don't you get off your butt and do something for a change? There goes Susie. I hear she's a total sleaze. I'm sure your school has its own labels. In my school, we had the cowboys, the brains, the airheads, the pretty boys, the partiers, the preps, the babes, the burnouts, the jocks, the D-wingers, and many other groups. I was labeled in the jock category. The term jock meant that you played sports, were stuck on yourself, and had the brain, a brain the size of a peanut. Labels are an ugly form of prejudice. Break down the word prejudice and what do you get? Prejudge. Isn't that interesting? When you label someone, you are prejudging them. That means making conclusions about someone without knowing them. I don't know about you, but I can't stand it when I'm unfairly judged by someone who doesn't know a thing about me. You and I are much too complex to be neatly shelved into a category like clothing in a department store as if there were only a handful of different types of people in the world instead of millions of unique individuals. If you've been falsely labeled, you can live with it. The real danger comes when you start to believe the labels yourself because labels are just like paradigms. When you see what you see is what you get. For instance, if you've been labeled as being lazy and you begin to believe it yourself, it will become a self-fulfilling belief. You'll act out the label. Just remember, you are not your labels. Watch out number two, it's all over syndrome. Another thing to watch out for is when you've made a mistake or three and feel so bad about what you've done that you say to yourself, it's all over. I've blown it. Who cares what happens now? At this point, you'll often begin to self-destruct and let it all hang out. Let me just say this. It's never over. It seems that many teens go through a time where they lose it and experiment and do a whole bunch of things they aren't proud of, almost as if they are testing the boundaries of life. If you have made mistakes, you're normal. Every teenager has. Every adult has. Just get your head screwed on straight as quickly as you can, and you'll be okay. Watch out number three, wrong wall. Have you ever worked really hard to get something you wanted only to find that when you got it, you felt empty inside? So often in our quest to be more popular and to be part of the in-group, we lose sight of things that are far more important, like self-respect, true friendships, and peace of mind. We are often so busy climbing the ladder of success that we never take time to see if our ladder is leaning against the raw correct. Right. Eh, leaning against the right wall. Having no end in mind is a problem, but having an end in mind that leads us in the wrong direction can be an even bigger problem. I once played football with a guy who was an incredible player. He had everything going for him, including being the team captain and having the ultimate buffed body. 
Each time he would excite fans with heroic efforts and spectacular athletic feats. Fans praised his name. Young boys worshipped him and women adored him. He had it all, or so it appeared. You see, even though he was shining on the field, he wasn't doing right off the field, and he knew it, and so did I, because I had grown up with him. As his fame increased, I watched him turn away from his principles and lose his direction. He gained the high fives of the crowd, but compromised something else far more meaningful, his character. It doesn't really matter how fast you're going or how good you're looking. If you're headed in the wrong direction, how can you tell if your ladder is leaning against the right wall? Stop. Take a moment right now and ask yourself, is the life I'm living leading me in the right direction? Be brutally honest as you pause and listen to your conscience, that inner voice. What is it telling you? Our lives don't always require 180 degree shifts in, dire in direction. More often, we need only small shifts. But small changes can make huge destination differences. Imagine this. If you wanted to fly from New York to Tel Aviv in Israel, but made a one degree change north, you would end up in Moscow instead of Tel Aviv. Go for the goal. Once you have your mission in place, you will want to set goals. Goals are more specific than a mission statement and can help you break down your mission into bite-sized pieces. If your personal mission was to eat a whole pizza, your goal would be how to slice it up. Sometimes when we hear the word goals, we go on a guilt trip. It reminds us of all the goals we should be setting and the ones we've blown. Forget about any mistakes you may have made in the past. Follow the advice of George Bernard Shaw, who said, When I was a young man, I observed that nine out of ten things I did were failures. I didn't want to be a failure, so I did ten times more work. Here are five keys to setting goals. Key number one, count the cost. How many times do we set goals when we are in the mood, but then later find we don't have the strength to follow through? Why does this happen? It's because we haven't counted the cost. Let's pretend you set a goal to get better grades in school this year. Good and fine, but now, before you begin, count the cost. What will it require? For instance, you will have to spend more time doing math and grammar and less time hanging out with your friends. You will have to stay up late some nights. Finding more time for schoolwork might mean giving up watching TV or reading your favorite magazine. Now, having counted the cost, consider the benefits. What could good grades bring you? A feeling of accomplishment, a scholarship to college, a good job? Now ask yourself, am I willing to make the sacrifice? If not, then don't do it. Don't make commitments to yourself you know you're going to break because you'll take withdrawals from your personal bank account. A better way is to make the goal more bite-sized. Instead of setting a goal to get better grades in all your classes, you might set a goal to get better grades in just two classes. Then next trimester, take another bite. Counting the cost will always add a touch of needed realism to your goals. Key number two, put it in pen. It's been said, a goal not written is only a wish. There are no ifs and buts about it. A written goal carries ten times the power. 
A young woman named Tammy told me how writing down her goals helped her eventually choose the right marriage partner. Tammy had been in an emotionally abusive relationship with a guy named Tom for several years and, and felt trapped. She had become dependent on him and was miserable. A visit from a special friend one day finally gave her the inner spark she needed to make a change. This is an excerpt from Tammy's journal when she was 18. Just yesterday, I found enough strength and strong will to leave Tom and the environment I was a part of for the past two and a half years. I needed to make a 180 degree change in order to find inner strength enough to succeed. I drew up a mental picture of where I wanted to be in five years and how I wanted to feel. I had a vision of being my own person, of having the strength to make good decisions for my life, and most of all, being with someone in a good, healthy relationship. I came up with a list of qualities I wanted in a relationship, and I think I will write them down now for future reference. Qualities for a relationship, future spouse. One, respect. Two, unconditional love. Three, honesty. Four, loyalty. Five, will support me in my pursuit of goals in life. Righteous in a spiritual nature. Fun, good sense of humor. Number eight, makes me laugh every day. Number nine, will make me feel whole, not torn apart. Number 10, a good father or good children. Number 11, a good listener. Number 12, will make time for me and will want the best for me in life. Now that I have this list documented, I have some place to turn to get a glimpse of what the future can hold. It gives me hope when I read it, and it reminds me of a better way to live life. Tammy later met and married a great guy who fulfilled her requirements. Happy endings do happen. As Tammy discovered, there's something magical about writing down your goals. Writing forces you to be specific, which is very important in goal setting. As actress Lily Tomlin has said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. Key number three, just do it. I once read a story about Cortez and his expedition to Mexico. With over 500 men and 11 ships, Cortez sailed from Cuba to the coast of Yucatan in 1519. On the mainland, he did something no other expedition leader had thought of. He burned his ships. By cutting off all means to retreat, of retreat, Cortez committed his entire force and himself to the cause. It was conquest or bust. To everything there is a season, says the Bible. A time to say, I'll try, and a time to say, I will. A time to make excuses and a time to burn your ships. Of course, there are times when trying our best is all we can do. But I also believe there is a time for doing. Would you lend $2,000 to a business partner who said, I'll try to return it? Would you get married if your partner, when asked to take you as a lawfully wedded husband or wife, said, I'll try? Get the point? I once heard a story about a captain and a lieutenant. Lieutenant, would you please deliver this letter for me? I'll do my best, sir. No, I don't want you to do your best. I want you to deliver this letter. I'll do it or I'll die, sir. You misunderstand, Lieutenant. I don't want you to die. I want you to deliver this letter. Finally, the Lieutenant caught on and said, I will do it, sir. Once we are fully committed to doing a task, our power to complete it will increase. 
If you do the thing, said Ralph Waldo Emerson, you will have the power. Each time I have committed myself to a goal, I seem to dig up gold mines of willpower, skill, and creativity I never thought I possessed. Those who are committed always find a way. The following passage by W.H. Murray is one of my all-time favorites. It describes what happens inside when we say, I will. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always in effectiveness. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, when providence moves too. All sorts of things begin to occur which would never otherwise have occurred, and a whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and material assistance which no man would have dreamt would have come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. In the words of Yoda, the great Jedi master, do or do not, there is no try. Key number four, use momentous moments. Certain moments in life contain momentum and power. The key is to harness these moments for goal setting. Things with starts and finishes or beginnings and ends carry momentum. For example, a new year represents a start. Breaking up, on the other hand, represents an end. I remember how sick I felt after breaking up with my girlfriend after two years of dating. But I also remember the excitement of creating a new list of girls to date. The following is a list of moments that can provide momentum for you as you set out to make new goals. A new school year. A life-changing experience. Breaking up, a new job, a new relationship, a second chance, birth, death, an anniversary, a triumph, a setback, moving to a new city, a new season, graduation, marriage, divorce, a new home, a promotion, a demotion, a new look, a new day. Often, tough experiences can carry momentum. Are you familiar with the myth of the phoenix bird? After every lifespan of 500 to 600 years, the beautiful phoenix would burn itself at the stake. Out of the ashes, it would later arise, reborn. In like manner, we can regenerate ourselves out of the ashes of a bad experience. Setbacks and tragedies can often serve as a springboard for change. Learn to harness the power of key moments, to set goals and make commitments when you are in the mood to do it. Be assured as well that the mood to do it will pass. Sticking with it when you don't feel like it is the true test of your character. As someone once put it, character is the discipline to follow through with resolutions long after the spirit in which they were made has passed. Key number five, rope up. My brother-in-law, the mountain climber, once escorted me and a friend up the 13,776-foot Grand Teton. It was terrifying. As we ascended, the mountain turned vertical. At that 
point, we roped up or tied ourselves together with ropes to aid us in climbing and to save our lives if one of us fell. On two occasions, that roped rope kept me from taking thousand foot falls to my death. Believe me, I love that rope as I've never loved a rope before. By assisting each other and relying on the ropes, we finally reached the summit safely. You'll accomplish much more in your life if you'll rope up and borrow strength from others. Let's suppose you set a goal to get in great shape. Now think, how could you rope up? Well, maybe you could find a friend who has the same goal and the two of you could work out together and become each other's cheerleaders. Or maybe you could tell your parents about your goal and get their buy-in. Or maybe you could share your goal with an athletic trainer or your gym coach and ask him or her for advice. Get creative. Rope up with friends, brothers, sisters, girlfriends, parents, counselors, grandparents, pastors, or whomever else you can. The more ropes you have out, the greater your chance of success.